Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, two big media stories I want to touch on. Two media stories that you have been asking us to look into. Uh, One is about a documentary you may never see, and one about a huge media scandal you might not know about. And we're going to approach them both a little bit differently this week. Welcome to Shortcuts. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Michael Miles, Brian Bancroft, Angus Bell, Alan Morantz, Mark Cretchen, Thomas Hawk, Brad Johnson, Joseph Clark, Ben Thronson, Craig, and Mark Wells. Mark, why did you decide to be awesome? I do it because uh, I figured somebody's got to pay this guy, and uh, may as well be me. This episode is also brought to you by Sure Design T-shirts. Sure Design T-shirts is a company based in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and they make these unique crinkly cotton t-shirts that are incredibly soft and stretchy and they sport these really intricate interesting graphical and sometimes tribal designs that are worth a look uh one happy customer describes sure designs t-shirts as unreasonably soft and comfortable sure design t-shirts does custom printing in the united states and if you have your own store or uh, yoga studio here in Canada, you can order wholesale and get product shipped internationally. There are lots of designs on this website. The designs that I liked best were these vintage beer logos, beer brands from around the world. This isn't like vintage Budweiser. This is international beer brands on T-shirts, vintage logos. Check it out at their website, SureDesignT-shirts.com. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they Don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, 
you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Okay, first topic today is something that I have no tape to play you. And in fact, I got nobody to talk about it with. It's, it's, uh, it's a mystery. It was reported by Robert Benzie in the Toronto Star that this documentary commissioned by TV Ontario about Kathleen Wynne will likely never be seen. And a lot of you have been urging me to look into this, to investigate this, to talk about this. And it is proving, uh, well, so far impossible to get anybody involved on the record about this. Something important may have happened here. Uh, Roxana Spicer, veteran documentary producer, was working with the you know somewhat legendary uh, documentary director functioning as a producer in this respect, Peter Raymond. And she got very close access to Kathleen Wynne for this documentary called Premier, The Unscripted Kathleen Wynne. So what happened? Uh, about a month ago, Roxana Spicer, the director, and her team screened parts of this documentary for Kathleen Wynne's advisors. And these advisors, upon seeing the footage, refused to sign release forms. Now, there's so much that needs to be unpacked there. Like, in what journalistic context do you need release forms of the subject of the journalism? I mean, nobody would ever sign a release form of footage that makes them look bad. But this is documentary production, and a lot of people don't realize this. You see a news report on TV, you see something that looks more like a documentary on the Fifth Estate at W5, or you see a feature documentary on TVO. I think a lot of people just, it looks like the same thing. It looks like different versions of nonfiction news reporting and, you know, just the length is what distinguishes one from the other. But the legal framework that these different types of journalism exist within are vastly different. And when you're doing a documentary that a production company is commissioned to produce and deliver to a broadcaster like TVO, part of that contract is that they have to have release forms from the subject signed. And that is a requisite for errors and omission insurance, libel protection insurance. And in effect, what that means in many cases, and in this case, obviously, is that the person who the documentary is about gets a veto. They get to basically say whether or not the documentary can be aired or not. And that is a big problem for any kind of journalism. Now, I don't know exactly what happened in this case. Uh, Robert Benzie, I think, covered this quite well, as well as he could. What it seems happened is, is that Kathleen Wynne and her people agreed to have these cameras following them around, and they had one idea of what the documentary was about and what they were told it was about, what it was supposed to be about, was a behind-the-scenes look at the preparation of their budget. As fascinating as that sounds, uh, that was the original scope of the documentary. Does that mean that Roxana Spicer was lying, that she actually had some surreptitious other agenda? We don't know that, and I doubt it very much. That's what happens when you show up with cameras. Things happen, and that's sort of when, you know, journalism can occur. When you have that kind of access and something important happens, that's what you kind of hope for. 
And it sounds like that's what happened because the actual documentary that they ended up putting together ended up having a lot to do with a by-election in Sudbury in February that is now the subject of an Ontario provincial police probe into allegations that the Liberal Party tried to bribe Andrew Olivier to not run for the Liberal candidacy. So you're there to cover the lead-up to a budget, and you actually end up getting incredible footage of a scandal as it is happening, or what later becomes a scandal. Now, I do not necessarily fault the Wynn administration. If they have a veto on that footage, if you come to them and say, hey, we have all this scandalous footage that might even incriminate people. I mean, I don't know. I'm speculating here. Who knows what this footage is about? It, it sounds very likely that this is newsworthy footage that these journalists captured on camera. And then they go and ask Kathleen Wynn and her people, will you sign off on it? Well, no, they're going to say no. Now, I will ding them for misrepresenting themselves. I mean, this their response to this is that they're not trying to stifle it at all. All. They would never try to stifle it. Kathleen Wynne herself coming under fire because she's made a big noise about transparency. She said, no, no, that's not our intention. We knew this was going to be independent as it should be, but there was, there was a scope of this project. There was a scope and they stepped outside of the scope. And I think that's where the discussion is right now. So, I mean, to that, what can you say? That is exerting editorial control. I had one idea of the documentary I wanted to be in. They made a different documentary that I don't want to be in. So I am going to not sign these forms and therefore not allow this footage to be released. You are stifling the documentary. You are being less than transparent. That's just what you're doing. But who can expect her to do otherwise? It seems that Spicer was asked to eliminate the controversial footage, which seems to be the most relevant and interesting footage from this, and she wouldn't do that, and she stepped away from the project, which is to her credit. All that she will say to the press is that all I'm going to say about that at this time is that I couldn't deliver a documentary that was consistent with TVO's standards of editorial integrity and independence. So in order to get the documentary in, she couldn't deliver one that she felt was independent and had editorial integrity. So that speaks volumes. What I am very frustrated about is that I can't get the journalists involved in this to talk to me. Roxana Spicer won't talk to me. Why? Because she signed an NDA. She signed a non-disclosure agreement with White Pines Pictures, Peter Raymond's company, and that prohibits her from speaking about this. Now, on the one hand, I can totally understand that, and why should she put herself in a position to be sued? On the other hand, a journalist signing an NDA and putting herself in a position where, as far as I can tell, it seems like she witnessed some newsworthy stuff. She documented, she covered newsworthy information. So there is arguably a responsibility to the public to report that stuff. What does a journalist exist to do? But she is legally bound. And not to put this all on Roxana Spicer, because this is just how documentaries get made. And we're seeing again and again that the legal framework within which documentaries are produced can and does stop them from getting aired, especially when they are not made by news organizations that have clout. The news organizations are increasingly commissioning these documentaries from third-party production companies. That's just how it's done. There was a period where it was done both in-house and externally at the CBC. Now it is only being done externally. Guys, this is not an isolated incident when it comes to documentaries. It seems to be a more and more frequent area of coverage for Canada Land, be it the Koch Brothers documentary that Global pulled or the Voluntourism documentary that the CBC re-edited when there were licensing problems, permission problems that were kind of dubious with the Kielbergers, uh, the Scientology documentary that never got aired here. We were told it was licensing and copyright. This is happening again and again. What it amounts to is we don't get to see these documentaries, at least not as they were originally meant to be seen. So I don't know. I am here alone in my studio talking about this because Roxana Spicer and Peter Raymond, they 
can't or won't talk to me. I'm here hashing this out by myself. I don't think I should be. I think we need to have a conversation about how documentaries can be made differently. And if anybody has any ideas about who I should be speaking about or what I should be speaking about, please let me know, because this seems to be happening just about every other week. De choc dans le milieu journalistique, une enquête de la presse révèle que le journaliste et chroniqueur François Bougingo aurait fabriqué de faux reportages. Très grave, qui est très rare et qui peut potentiellement porter atteinte à toute la profession. François Bougingo was a freelance reporter for 98.5. He was a contributor to its afternoon radio show. The station, rather, released a statement today saying it has suspended Bougingo. The move comes after a report in La Presse alleging the reporter had fabricated and embellished some of his stories dating back to 1993. Today, on his Facebook page, Bougingo has denied the allegations. Perhaps you're like me and you had never heard the name Francois Bougingo a week ago. Uh, perhaps you still don't know who that is. I have just learned about the existence of this person who is, was, the most famous foreign correspondent in French Canada. This is one of those situations where I don't even know whether or not to say alleged because he himself has owned up to some of these inconsistencies and other problems with this journalism that have been pointed out seem to be so rock solid. He seems to have been exposed uh, as a fraud, at least to some degree. So a little background, he is a native of Congo. He moved to Canada in 1997. Uh, by his own bio, he covered virtually every conflict of the last 15 years, Rwanda, Algeria, Colombia, Iraq, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Congo. He filed stories on TV, in print, radio, the TVA network, Journal de Montréal, 98.5 FM. These are big news organizations in French Canada. And as the story was breaking, the CBC's Katie O'Malley asked for a little bit of uh, context on Twitter. Like, can somebody give me a, an English language equivalent? as to how big a deal Bougingo is. And some people said, you know, Neil McDonald. Other people said, well, Neil McDonald, you know, he's not as much of a personality as Bougingo was. What about Christy Blatchford? And then somebody else said, yeah, but Christy Blatchford, a lot of people hate her, a lot of people love her. Bougingo was just, he was famous. He was not controversial. And he was, as, as one journalist uh, guessed, the name that would come up if you stopped a French-speaking Canadian on the street and said, name a foreign correspondent. He has since been suspended by all of those organizations who are now investigating his work because of an expose by Isabelle Haché of La Presse. My French is non-existent, so analyzing the media's response to this uh, breaking story does not seem like the way to go. Instead, I've got Isabelle Haché with me now. Allô, bonjour, Isabelle. Can you give us an idea of just who he is? He was very famous here in Quebec. He's very good on TV. I mean, he's very charming and he's very good. He's, most of the time he's uh, analyzing the international uh, affairs. So it doesn't say that he went there and there and there. He's just doing like what happened everywhere in the world. So there's no problem about that and he's good at that. But sometimes when you talk about what he did himself, was not really true, and not true at all. And it was uh, almost like kind of a, an adventurous, globe-trotting foreign correspondent in war zones. I mean, and for many years, right? Well, he says that he was in Libya in 2012, in July 2012, and he was in Misrata, a town in Libya, where he witnessed uh, execution of a torturer of the old regime. And it wasn't true. I asked him, well, you were in Misrata? And he said, no, I've never been there. And I said, are you sure? I read about that in the, in the Journal de Montréal. And he said, no, no, I wasn't there. So I told him, don't you remember the militia in Misrata who killed the, the torturer there in front of your eyes? And he said, no, 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 I just, maybe I read it somewhere. 
So things like that. <laughs> he said that he covered every major conflict since 20 years. But when you try to find those news reports, where did you publish it? There are nowhere to be found. I mean, it's not. They're not there. Anecdotally, he says, I covered this, I covered that. But when you go looking for the stories yes. of him here re reporting for, from Rwanda during the genocide in 94, you couldn't find any stories that prove that to be true. He says that he negotiated with al-Qaeda terrorists in, in uh, Mauritania to release journalists who were taken hostage in 2010 because he is the vice president of Reporters Without Borders. Yeah, he was uh, vice president. That's true that he was vice president of Reporters Without Borders. But the... What is not true is that he went to Mauritania in uh, 2010 to negotiate uh, the, the, the liberation of a journalist who was, as he claimed, hostage by Al-Qaeda. That's not true. And he told it. I see. I mean, he told me, no, no, it wasn't an hostage. But he said, yes, I went there anyway. And I said, why? And, and he said, I, I spoke to people in Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda people there. And I asked him why, and he said, uh, well, I won't tell you. I won't tell you because I, I have a, I'm writing a book right now, and you're going to sing the book. So that was his line. Every time I asked him something that he didn't want to tell me, he said, you will read it in the, in the book. What made you decide to investigate him? Well, I was reading his blog and his column in Le Journal de Montréal for maybe a year or something like that. And every time I, I read things like that, I was thinking to myself, that's um, incredible, uh, impossible. And I wasn't the only one. I mean, there were a lot of people who, who had doubts, but nobody did any, anything, I think, before that, because I, I don't know actually why, but I think people had something else to do, like me, you know, you, you're working about, uh, on something else and you don't have time, you just read it and you say, oh my God, that seems strange, but you keep on your on your work. And one day he, uh, he wrote in a column in the Journal de Montréal that he had an interview with Saif al-Islam, who is uh, a son of uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. And at that time, it was in February, and I said, okay, we, we really have to do something about that. You know, we have to look into it and try to, to make an investigation about it because it didn't seem possible that Bougingo could obtain an interview with Saif al-Islam in his prison in 2012. Not a single Western journalist had an interview with him since his capture in 2011. So Bougingo just mentioned it at the end of his column uh, this year in February. So it would have been three years after the supposed interview. It seems impossible to me. Why didn't he sell his story in 2012? It was a scoop. He could have sold it to the New York Times. Why did he wait three years to mention it at the end of a column in Le Journal de Montréal? So that was the starting point of my investigation. There was a giveaway detail there, wasn't there? Because he, he said that he had to have a translator for that interview. Uh, I didn't try to catch him. I mean, he just told me that. He just told me that it was uh, not a very easy interview because one, he was in prison, and two, he had to go through a translator, and the translator haven't had a good English, just like me, <laughs> I guess. And uh, so, so I said, I said, I just said, uh, well, oh yeah, you, you need a translator. And he said, uh, yes. And it was strange to me because I met Saif al-Islam before Muammar Gaddafi, uh, and I talked to him directly in English, he had a 
much better English than me, actually. <laughs> Yet Francois Beguingo, he, he has uh, responded to your expose. He says he was stunned by the allegations. He says that he's he plans to thoroughly defend his integrity. He would be on with us now, but for the fact that he has uh, disappeared from public life, he says to prepare his defense. He's going to defend his integrity. It's hard standing from this point. You, you know, you, you, you do a pretty thorough job of detailing some of these transgressions and falsehoods. Could he possibly explain this away? And, and some people have suggested online, you know, he's a, a commentator and an analyst. He's a storyteller. People embellish or they, you know, maybe he's just confused. He mixes up dates. But in essence, he wasn't trying to defraud anyone, that this was a question of sloppiness and not of deceit. Is that, you know, possibly, is he going to be able to get away from this? Is, and, and is that possibly true? Well, no, I don't think so. I think, I think he just like fabricate uh, stories. I mean, it's not possible. At, I don't think he was in Sarajevo in two thousand in nineteen ninety three. You know, he told the TVA interview. He was there in nineteen ninety three in Sarajevo with the sniper shooting, 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 and he was after that drinking with them and playing guitar with them. I mean, he was eighteen years old at that time, and he was in Burundi, and he wasn't even a journalist at that time. So, no, I don't think it's sloppiness. I don't. I just don't think he was in Sarajevo ever. It's baffling that he was able to get away with it, if in fact this is all true. You have, as I say, documented this all very thoroughly, but there is a big piece on the other side of the story, which is just how unlikely, how hard it is to believe that he was filing stories for the biggest news organizations in Quebec, serious journalistic enterprises. He had editors, he had producers, and he's been doing this for years. Yeah, it's very surprising, actually, but I, I'm not very... You will have to ask them, I mean, his boss, why he, they didn't check what he wrote. I mean, I'm, I'm not very well placed to, to talk for them. I mean, I don't know, I don't know why they, they didn't check, because there, there were a lot of suspicion amongst colleagues and not only in La Presse, no, I mean everywhere. But the, the thing is in French Canada and in France actually, there's no fact checking that like you have in, uh, in, in English Canada and United States and Britain. We don't have that. We don't have fact checker. Isabel, we don't have it either. I mean, some magazines uh, have fact checkers. No. The Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star will have to fact checker, no? I, I think it's a case by case basis, but I think as a as standard practice, I'm not aware of any newspaper or a TV broadcaster that actually goes through a story fact by fact and gets independent confirmation the way that uh, I've had done to some stories when I've written for magazines. And not all magazines do that either. I want to put this in context of uh, Quebec media. I'm, I'm always trying to find ways to explain, I mean, and to learn about for myself. It's just such a different universe you have in Quebec um, when it comes to the news media and the media uh, in general. And earlier today, you were on 98.5 uh, radio, and the host, uh, Benoit uh, Dutrezac, he he really came out at you. He attacked you, and, and he said that though he's furious with uh, Bugingo himself, he also expressed a lot of anger towards you and said that, you know, what you're doing is you're waging war on Quebecor media properties on behalf of La Presse, that this is just uh, essentially one newspaper taking a shot at another by attacking uh, the reputation of Francois Bouguingo. What do you have to say to that accusation? I think he was very furious. He was, he was mad at Francois Bouguingo because 
he had trust in him and he, he worked with him for years and he was very emotional. I don't know if you heard everything, but he, he cried at the end of the, uh, after the interview. So uh, I think he was very emotional about that. We did hear him, you know, defend uh, Bugingo and say whatever he's done, you know, it was blameless. He said something like that, that he never, you know, he never actually extorted anyone, that he didn't harm anyone. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, it's true. You know, he, he said he didn't kill anybody and he didn't like steal any, anybody. And well, it's true. <laughs> what can I say? It's true. But he lied to people. And I think it's our duty as a journalist to expose those kind of things. You know, uh, it's it's interesting to this question of how could such a high-profile media personality get away with doing wrong for so long, especially when so many people in the industry, as you say, were aware of it and there was gossip and it was just common knowledge that there were problems with his stories. And it, it wasn't until you investigated a fellow journalist. Uh, I, I can't help but see parallels. Do you do, do you do media criticism? Do you see yourself as a journalist who is uh, focused on other journalists? I'm, I'm, I'm not so familiar. No, 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 not at all. No, I'm covering uh, international uh, stories. Maybe that's why I was uh, interested in this in Bingo, because I, I know what it is to cover international story and to travel and to do those kind of things so I thought it was very strange because I did it and I know what it is so I, I can't believe that you can be in Misrata the day they're gonna execute someone you know too strange to be true. What is this pressure that foreign correspondents seem to feel? Like, you know, you're supposed to just be there to report on major world events, but all of a sudden, everyone's Indiana Jones. Everyone is suddenly, they're part of the story. They're negotiating the release of hostages. They're getting shot at. They're part of history. Uh, do you feel that the, a pressure to put yourself in those stories? Or do you, can you understand or relate to how in in the retelling, uh, Francois Bougingo would, would uh, make himself into such a, a romantic figure? Oh, well, no, I don't relate to it. But I think it's a, it's a style, maybe. There's some people want to do to be like that. And usually it's on TV. I mean, but in, in the paper, I think it's much less like that, I think. Yeah. As a TV journalist, it's just such a strange... I mean, wouldn't there have been news crews with him? Uh, you have to wonder what's going through his head saying these things and being so flagrant about it when it's so easily... If you start to poke these things and you start to just logically figure out... I know this is the work that you did. You looked at the mileage between cities and, you know, whether these things were even possible and it all unraveled, uh, you know. it's It seems very hard to imagine how he's going to explain his way out of this. Yes, exactly, yeah. Yeah, true. Are you, uh, you must be in the middle of like a media yes. frenzy right now. How many interviews have you given today? Uh, I think it's my seven or eight uh, interview, but I, I have more tonight and this afternoon, so. I know it's a, a hectic day for you. Thanks for sharing this story with us. It's, it's phenomenal. What a story. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Thank you. Okay, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is canadalandshow.com. And the crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make the show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. And the next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. If you like this show, support it.